Morning and welcome to the fourth installment of our class as we look at First and Second Thessalonians. Um, this week we're going to be looking at another truth. The truth this week is true churches. Now, I know it's a lot of times when you say churches to us, the first thing someone say, well, you know, that's not a, that's just a building. But we have to think about something. What makes this a church are the individuals that come in here to worship God. That makes this a church. So when we all come in together, we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid or to say, I'm going to church because I am going where the other called out are coming together to worship God as a family in oneness of mind and oneness of truth and oneness of spirit. So we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Sometimes we spend too much time trying to talk things, talk ourselves out of things. You say, I'm going to church. That's not the church. You should be thankful that the person is saying, I'm going there. Is there any difference between saying I'm going to the building and I'm going to church? No. <laughs> so the question is this right here. We asked the question last night, what is the difference between a true minister and a minister? So I asked the same question tonight. What is the difference between a true church and a church? Yes. Same answer as last time. Same answer as last time. It's all about God. On our board up there, it's not up there now, but a long time ago we were doing some things here and I asked Tracy to do something for me. On our slide that we show everybody all the time, and I asked her to show, put something on that slide to go along with what we had out there. And this is what I asked her to put there. God-centered, Christ Jesus preached. That's what we're all about, centered on God, preaching Christ Jesus. So tonight we're going to venture into Paul, right into the Thessalonians, but also right into Anchorage Church of Christ in 2024 as he talks to them about true churches. You notice you put a plural here, true churches, because true church, true church, true church, true church, true church, true churches when you bring us all together. So would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, there's truth in your word. And Father, there's truth in the knowledge of knowing that you are our God, you are our Father, you are our Creator. Father, we know it's because of you we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. We know because of you we have the Holy Spirit to guide us each and every day of our lives. And Father, we pray that we never try to minimize what it is we're doing when we're coming together to worship you. Let us shout out aloud that we are proud of the fact in a spiritual way that we are coming together as a family to worship our God. All of all of these different people from these different uh, cultures, from these different backgrounds and everything, we are coming together in oneness to worship the one God, the one creator, the one Father. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity each and every day that we have to do this. Not just come here together, Father, but wherever we are, Father, we allow the world around us to see you living in us. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. And amen. Oops. So then, let's do a review. So, what have we learned so far? We know that Paul has written two letters. 
First and Second Thessalonians, we know that he has written his letter to the church there that he established, a very young church that he established back in about 51 AD. We knew that he was only there for a very short period of time because of the things that was going on around him with people accusing him and attacking him. We know that it was during his second missionary journey. We know that he saw a vision, and the vision said, the man from Macedonia, come over and help us. He was prevented from going to Asia. This church that he is writing to it has been faithful. It was growing despite all of the attacks that were taking place, uh, on not just on Paul by the Jewish leaders, but also the persecutions that, that the church itself were experiencing from the pagan society in which they lived. And as you recall, the first epistle, First Thessalonians, begins with Paul doing something. First of all, he is expressing his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith and for their perseverance. He's thankful for that. Next, he defends his conduct among them by describing how true ministers, as we looked at it last week, are supposed to act and how this was the way he and his associates acted around them. So how was he acting? He showed them that this is what it means. This is how it feels. This is what you do to go about the business of trusting in God. This is the things that you do when you're going about the business of living a pure lifestyle. This is what you do when you're going about the business of working hard and spreading the gospel and building up sisters and brothers in Christ. This is what you go about the business of doing when you're showing that you are lovers of the church. So in the last chapter, chapter 2 and 3 actually, Paul shows us that true conversion begins with sincere ministers who preach the truth in love to people who receive the message of God's word, but they do something else. They respond to this message in faith. They respond to this message in obedience. So until this point, Paul has discussed the nature of true conversion and true ministers. So at this point, he will look at some characteristics that are associated with the true church that belongs to Christ Jesus. So when we look at chapter 4 tonight, verses 1 through 12, what Paul is going to be spelling out to those in, in Thessalonica, what Paul is going to be spelling out to us on DeBar Road at Anchorage Church of Christ in 2024, he's going to be spelling out something about the church. And what he wants them to know is this. What he wants us to know is this. The church continually purifies itself, uh, rather purifies its conduct. Now, when we think about that, the key word here is Continually. Many churches begin well, but due to lack of desire to continue to purify themselves and improve their conduct, they start to fall. So when we look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, listen to what the Bible says. It says, finally then, brothers, keep that word brothers in mind, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so, check this out, more and more. For you know 
what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So, it's court. You're doing a great job bringing the focus. I mean, you do a great job. So, but am I putting you down by saying, court, I want to see you do more up there. Am I putting you down? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, I'm really happy with what you're doing. And you can do more. Because you see... What's that age old saying? When the, the day that you stop growing is the day that you start falling back, I think it is. So we should always be striving to learn more about the God we serve, to learn more about the Christ Jesus that we were reunited with in waters of baptism. We should never get to the point where we think we know it all. Because when we do that, I have to fall back on what my granddad used to say. Son, in my case, he said, boy, boy. It's what you learn after you know everything that counts. And it's the same thing when we come to the Word of God. Sometimes we think we know so much about the Word of God. We're 20 years old. We've been to college. We know it all because we were at this Christian school. I know everything there is to know. No, that's when you need to start learning more. And that's, Paul is telling them, you're doing a great thing. You do a great thing. But do so more and more. Keep doing it. So note that Paul tells the church that he knows they are living in a way that pleases God. And again, he goes about the business encouraging them by the authority of Christ to continue to purify that lifestyle according to what he has taught them, according to what he will teach them. So I have a question for you. Oh, I wish I'd made it bigger, but the question is still there. Why do you suppose that Paul feel it is necessary to give that young church these instructions. Why do you feel that Paul, why do you think that Paul feels it's necessary to give the church here on the bar road in 2023 those instructions? Why do you think that? What's that? Because they were not doing it? Okay. But oops, let's back up. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing <laughs> that you do so more and more. So so you want to you give it another shot? What's that? That's it, to encourage them to keep doing it. To encourage them to keep doing it. He's not saying you're doing a bad thing. He's saying you're doing a good thing. But don't pat. You, you know how we get sometimes? We get to do somebody come up and tell us how good we are. And we're so busy patting ourselves on the back, we stop doing good. We stop doing We start going backwards because we're so busy patting ourselves on the back. He said, don't pat yourself on the back. Just keep doing it more and more and more. Because the more and more you're doing, the people around you are going to see it. And that is how we can go about the business are bringing more people to Christ because they see what we're doing. They know that we are not a fly-by-the-night act, if you will. You did it once, okay, you're happy, now you can't do it again. Keep doing it. Do it more and more. All right. So, in in other words, I'll reword the question, answer to the question this way. They lived, which is another part, and it's no different in Anchorage today. Those people, those brethren that was living in Thessalonica, they were living among great temptation. And the only way to remain strong, just like today, is to keep the commitment to continually strive to please God. 
Every day is a, is a process for us to continually strive to please God. Now, I, I, I'll be honest with you because I know this happens. Some people grow tired of sermons. Some people grow tired of lessons encouraging the church to be careful and to work hard at improvement. I don't want to hear that no more. I've heard it enough. But you know what? These are necessary. These type lessons, these type sermons are necessary because only a firm commitment to continued growth and purity will keep the church pure. Impure and uncommitted churches have no power to win souls to Christ Jesus. But not only that, impure and, and, and uncommitted churches risk, risk losing their own spiritual help. Paul did not want this to happen to that church there at Thessalonica. Honestly, Paul did not want that to happen to the church here on the Bar Road. So he mentions three areas that they needed to purify their lives. So we turn our attention to verses 3 through 5. And what he's going to be addressing here is he's saying you need to be sexually pure. You need sexual purity is what he's saying to them. So when we look at verse uh, 4, verse 3 I should say in chapter 4, the Bible says, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word sanctification means to set something aside for a godly purpose. When we become Christians, our physical bodies are sanctified. Our physical bodies are set aside for God's use. Now think about this for a moment. Bodies that belong to God are to be used for his glory. Our bodies, they belong to God. We are to use them for his glory. So, what are some forms of sexual immorality? Well, name a few. But that is not one of them. There are so many. <laughs> Consummating an unmarried situation. Okay, that's cute. Uh, you mean like adultery? Fornification. Okay. Okay, I like that. Fornication. Okay. Adultery. All right. Pornography. Homosexuality. Lesbianism, lewdness, bestiality, evil desires. Sexual immorality does not glorify God. Now, if you extend this thought a little bit further, you will see that God wants total sanctification for his church. Sanctification doesn't mean we are not to have a sex life. It means that even our sex life is under the control of God and is to be used for his glory. When a husband and wife are expressing their love and desire within their intimacy and boundaries of marriage, God is glorified. Activities outside this blessed state dishonors God, but it also dishonors the individual. Verses 4 and 5. 
that each one of you know how to control your own bodies in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul goes on to say that the way to achieve this sexual purity, if you will, is to continually struggle for the ownership of our bodies. That's something that tells us something right there. This this control that we're talking about, it's a job. It's a work and a half. It's a struggle. Controlling our sexual impulses so that they can be expressed in a meaningful and acceptable way, this honors God. Behaving like those who do not know God and and allow their bodies to be used for every devilish passion they feel this dishonors God. We can and should marry, but Paul says there is a way to do it that is right and that is pleasing to God. Sexuality was given by God to mankind. We know that. What did God say? <laughs> Let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he said, fill the earth and subdue it. How were they supposed to go about doing that if it wasn't for sex? They couldn't. So God then gave laws to guide our natural sexuality in such a way that this powerful force and it is a powerful force will bless men and women not destroy them to show you how powerful sex is men and women have killed over it it's a powerful thing it's a powerful thing so there also needs to be a purification in regards to integrity in business verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In this matter, I should say. Because, keep that word matter in mind, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The pagan world of the first century, it was known for two vices, sexual immorality, an unchecked greed. Thessalonica, as we mentioned when we first started this series, was a large city. There was a lot of trading going on. There was a lot of business going on. And many of the members of the church were involved in trade. Without the type of laws and checks and balances that, that we have in our system today, the, uh, the unsavory, the unscrupulous business practices that we saw back then were the norm at that time. And that they needed they would, they would basically they went unchecked, if you will. So Paul doesn't go into details uh, 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 or examples. He simply warns them. He warns them of the consequences of violating another person in these matters. Now, I don't think there's anybody in here who would want to be cheated by another person. Nobody wants to be cheated by another person. I would venture to say if I sold Tracy a million dollars worth of diamonds and she gave me a million dollars she found out later that was cut glass I don't think Tracy's going to call me and say Brother James I really appreciate what you did for me I don't think she would say that matter of fact she might come over with a baseball bat (laughs) and want to hurt me but anyway that's it that's it that's it so this is a double whammy when both of you know. <laughs> He'll get me later. You're going to get me now. But so then, so um, 
the word brother that we see up there, it is used in the sense of neighbor, not a member of the church. So keep that in mind for this particular text. So some individuals interpret this verse in another way. They're saying that Paul continues his warning about sexual sins, warning men in the church. Notice he just say men in the church for some reason to not commit adultery with another man's wife. What is also warning the women in the church not commit adultery with another woman's husband. It, that's what you call an elliptical statement, if you will. There's a flip side to it. The word matter is a commercial term. Uh, which literally means a business matter or in matters of commerce. This too was a noted problem in the city of Thessalonica in that, in that pagan society. And so Paul is referring to it here as well. So apparently, Paul has warned them of this before and he's warning them again. And basically he repeats his warning that even these violations will not go unpunished. Like Tracy said, God will know. So you're going to pay for it. But what's that what this thing? There's nothing like a woman scorned. <laughs> she would make you pay for it before God gets to you. Uh, verses 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity. He's reminding them of that. But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul summarizes these two admonitions here. He, he's talking, he's telling them about they need to make a greater effort at purifying their sexual and business lives or practices. He explains the reason why they must continue to purify themselves in these areas. And it, it, two reasons. Number one, they are a new creature. What does that mean? I'm a new creature. Good, thank you. So this is what my brother just said, and I'm going to say it another way, but he said the same thing. In Christian baptism, we bury the old pagan, unclean, impure, greedy, dishonest person, <laughs> and we resurrect a completely new person. You said all of that? You did say that. That's right. That new person is sanctified. That new person is set apart for a new a new purpose. You don't come out of the waters of baptism and say, I'm going to go right back to what I was doing yesterday. You may have, you're going to be tempted to. Sometimes we're going to slip, but that should not be our plan. I got wet today, and I'm going to go back to what I was doing tomorrow. This new life has a new focus. It has a new purpose. It has a new set of guidelines. 
This new life is about purity in thought. It's about purity in deed. It's about a continual effort to strain out what is impure and what is ungodly in our lives. We read this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where we are told that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That transformation is an ongoing process. That renewal is an ongoing process rather than be being conformed to that which we were already doing. We are saved because God loves us. We are sanctified because God has a purpose for our lives, which Paul will explain in the next section. Next, number two is this right here. They or we will be judged. The this that Paul refers to is God himself, the one who rejects, that is, the one who sets aside, the one who annuls, the one who puts aside not just a lifestyle, but also the very, they put aside the very God who gives this lifestyle of sanctification. And people do that. They put aside this ongoing purification that's powered by and made possible by the Holy Spirit who is given for this very purpose. In chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul says, or rather Paul will say this when we get there next week, in a few weeks, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Here he cautions that to deny or to ignore God's word has the effect of extinguishing or suffocating the power of the spirit within Christians. I think Stephen put it in perspective the other day when he was saying that a lot of times we want to blame our shortcomings on sin. We want to blame our shortcomings on Barbara. We want to blame our shortcomings on Jerry. We want to blame our shortcomings on everybody but ourselves because we forget we're the ones that make the decision to do it. Barbara didn't. Court didn't. Jerry didn't. Nobody did. I made that decision to sin. You may say, well, they put it before me, but still I made the decision. I made the decision. I make the decision for whether or not I'm going to follow God. I make the decision for whether or not I'm going to extinguish or suffocate the power of the Spirit within me that God has given me. So in this chapter, Paul is saying the same thing except that the extinguishing of the Spirit and his effect on us is done by us by not pursuing purity, by rejecting the sanctified life that God offers me in favor of my old life of sin. It's a decision that I make. We give Satan too much credit. We give Satan too much credit and don't give ourselves enough for the things that we have going on in our lives. He doesn't spell it out, but the end of the matter is plain. Woe to the one who rejects God. Woe to the one who rejects the spirit-empowered life that God offers to pursue the old life of sexual impurity, to pursue the old life of worldly greed, to pursue the old life of dishonesty. We know that these things can bring very real physical consequences. So here's the question I have. 
Here's the question I have. Think about this, because we, no, I don't think there are any two years olds in here. All of us are at least 20, give or take. Some of us a little bit higher. So what are some of the very real physical consequences of sexual impurity, of greed? What are some of the very real consequences of that? Let's say, just let's start with sexual impurity. What are some of the consequences of sexual impurity? Separation from God is a sin. Well, let's, let's go back a little bit further. Physical consequences of sexual impurity. Disruption of the family. Unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. Disease. Did you say something? Oh, I thought my man said something back there. Yeah. You know, those are physical consequences. Unwanted pregnancy, I like that. Guilt, depression. What about greed? The illustration we were using earlier, Tracy, be honest, brother in Christ or not, if you realize that I ripped you off, would you have that same love for me that you had before? You would love me. Exactly. Exactly. Enslavement to, you know, greed leads you to enslavement to depraved uh, habits, but also revenge from those we cheat. (laughs) steal or take advantage of people do not like to be used people do not like to be used especially by people in the church especially by people in the church yes there are physical consequences for all of these but Paul asked to these that there is also now we get into what my brother was talking about here brother Ron was talking about spiritual consequences spiritual consequences consequences to these things because and Paul warns us against those too because he wants to save us from that and that is a terrible spiritual consequence and that is being separated from God to show you how bad it is remember Adam and Eve in the garden I don't know how many years had passed but that man and that woman had been walking around naked for days that man and that woman had been interacting with God for days naked and didn't even notice it then they sinned. And what did they say when God was asking for them? Where were you? I hid myself. Why? Because we were naked. Who told you that? <laughs> they were naked all the time. But they were covered by God. And they didn't feel naked. But as soon as that sin hit, they felt it. They felt it. So let's remember Let's remember what's going on in this chapter. Paul tells them that there are three things that they need to work on in order to continue purifying themselves. We've talked about two of them already. They need to purify their sexual lives. They need to purify their business dealings. And then we get to verses 9 through 12 and we find something else they need to purify their public witness now I want to read all, all th- these three verses then I want to come back to them so starting at verse 9 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. That's a good thing. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Another good thing. For that indeed is what you are doing. All right. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Don't pat yourself on the back. You don't have nothing to cheer about. You still got a ways to go. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So we're going to go back there in a moment. So usually our sexual sins, they're done in secret. Most people can't tell if we are sexually pure or not. Most folks assume we are and are shocked if they find out any different. Our greed is also something we try to cover up or justify in various ways. Christians, Christians can hide these kinds of sins from other people. But the ability to hide our sins from others does not give us the power in affecting other people for Christ. It only fools the others into thinking, even fools us into thinking we're sincere when we're not. So here's the question. What affects people for Christ? What do we do that has an impact on people that will cause them to even consider coming to Christ? What can we do or what do we do that will either bring people to Christ or even at least put someone into the position of thinking they want to come to Christ? Because it starts, starts somewhere. We, I'm, I'm a true believer of this right here. We come to Christ mentally before we get here physically. We leave Christ mentally before we leave Christ physically. Okay? So, what do we do or what can we do to cause people to at least mentally start coming to Christ? So that's Brother Rogers right on it. They want to see Christ in us. And we have to live our lives in such a way that they see it. I remember something a person said a long time ago. I'm not going to call the brother's name that was, in, that was mentioned in this. But this is what the man said. And I hope that can never be said of any of us. This person came to visit a congregation. And this other individual was there that this person had worked with for 30 years. And what this man said was this. I worked with him for 30 years and never knew he was a Christian. 
never let that be said of any of us that we worked with anybody for even one year. And at the end of one year, they did not know we were a Christian. So, so what affects people for Christ or what brings people to Christ is a Christian, just what Brother Ron said, living a purified life and doing it consciously and openly, not by accident, doing it consciously and openly. If others don't see this, they will not be impacted by the message. They will not be impacted by the message. And so, in this final section, we see Paul establishing new goals. New goals for them to strive for in addition to the faithfulness and perseverance that they've already demonstrated. You've gotten to this point do even more to get to the next point. Do even more to get to the next point. Verses, oops, verses uh, 9 and 10. Let's go back and read that again. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers... Do this more and more. I urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more. He has already taught them the basic lesson of Jesus, which is to love one another. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we do. They're, they've already demonstrated faith. They've already demonstrated perseverance. They've already demonstrated hospitality. They've already helped the brethren throughout the province so that, that they are known as a loving church. Paul wants them to continue doing this th- these things. Their witness within the church was excellent. But now the apostle deals with what their witness of daily living should be to affect those outside the church, which is to say we can come in here and be as godly as we want to be Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. We can come in here and be as godly as we want to be. We can hug brother, kiss brother, shake brother, hand, you name it. But if we go out there and doing something else, then people see that. You know, I remember... Matt, I'm going to mess with you a minute. I remember doing COVID. I was at, Co- at Cos- Costco's. I hadn't seen Matt in so long, I forgot what Matt almost looked like. In this public place, Matt comes walking up to me. Hey, Brother James. I'm like, you got this this hat on. This, so I get, when he pulled some of this stuff away and I could see who it was, that's my brother Matt. We hugged each other there just like we do here. Didn't even worry about it. People see that. We don't hide from each other in public. I love you at church, but then I see you out there. I don't want to talk to you. I get away from you. No. I saw John Teamer today. Same thing. I see people all the time. People see me all the time. You never know who you're going to see where. But we shouldn't hide from who we are, whether we're in public or here in this building. And that's what Paul is saying. You guys are doing a great job here at the building. (laughs) Now go out there and do it too. Let's go to verse 11 again. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 
Now Paul gives them three things that are essential to lead a balanced life that provides a good witness to others outside the church. Number one, lead a quiet life. This doesn't mean that there is no excitement or, and there's no action here. We'd be some happy people. <laughs> I mean, we'd be some happy people. It refers to a quiet spirit, a quiet spirit, a calm heart, as opposed to a worrisome attitude. Some people love drama and everything in their life, their lives is a big deal. They draw everyone into their whirlwind because they've got to have them there. A quiet life is one where it is evident that God is in control. Number two, he says, attend to your own business. A quiet heart usually usually minds his own business. I think we call this virtue distression. Someone whose life is not always spilling over into everyone else's life. That doesn't mean we don't talk to one another and we allow others to help us carry our burdens. Then he says, work with your hands. This expression doesn't refer to manual labor exclusively. It means that your own hands, your own work supports you. If you're worried and and minding everyone else's business, you don't have time to take care of your own business. And Christians should earn their own living, quietly mind their own affairs, and live with security and peace of mind. And verse 12, so that 